So, welcome uh, to the Dream Factory. Our topic for this afternoon's reading forum is uh, reading research. Uh, and my first task is to apologise for the fact that Katya Johansson is not joining us. I did put that in the email out to all of you with the instructions of how to get here. And it was the day before I sent that email that Katya said she couldn't come. Um, she's Associate Professor at Deakin University, involved with the, the reading research project that I will tell you about later on. Um, and the Dean of her school uh, has, is very ill, and Katya had to step up into a lot of the roles that the Dean was uh, undertaking across the next few weeks, and she's in China <laughs> today. So she pretty much had to say, uh, wipe her calendar and get on a plane, because um, she had to step in for the Dean. So she was very apologetic that she couldn't be here. Consequently, that's made us uh, change the initial part of the afternoon slightly. Katya was going to talk to us about the Deakin Research Project, which I will still talk about a little bit. Um, but what we're going to do instead is I'm going to share with you a little bit uh, of, about some of the current research that has been in the news and in, the, in some of our um, journals in relation to reading. Um, and then I'm certainly going to open it up to the floor. We'll have about five minutes or so, hopefully. If any of you have got a particular article that you found that you thought is excellent or a particular research a paper that you think is really important that you'd like to share with us, and I did mention that in the email as well. If any of you would like to share, that would be fantastic. But as you remember with these afternoons, everything's quite uh, sh short uh, time span. So we're only going to spend about 20 minutes on the research. Then we're going to have our two wonderful guest authors this afternoon. We have Siobhan Plaza with us to talk about her novel and Katrina Lehman to talk about her picture book. And then we have um, Kristen at the end from the kids' bookshop who'll do her usual attempt to do 10 books in 10 minutes. Um, but she's not even here yet, I don't think. So not only has she got to get here, she's also got to do 10 books in 10 minutes. So a bit of pressure there. And then the bookshop, of course. And we've tried to lay on a lovely afternoon tea for you and please do have something to eat at the end of the event uh, as well um, before you wander off and have a browse of the books. So that's our agenda um, for the afternoon. Let's go back and grab my copy of what I have to do to make sure I've done everything I need to say. Oh, I will share the PowerPoint that I have created. I've put the URLs for the different uh, things that I'm going to speak about onto the PowerPoint, and I'm going to share that with all of you when I send you the email about, um, about responding to our survey. So I will make sure I share that PowerPoint with you, and I'll also put it onto the Slab website. So don't worry about if there's something that you haven't heard of and you would like to follow it up, um, I'll, you'll ha I'll, I'll make sure you've got all of those copies um, later on. I've also made some printouts of some of the, some of the articles I'm going to mention, and uh, I've only made a couple, but you're very welcome to take them. I, don't, I just thought someone might really desperately want something, um, and so there's a few of them there, and a couple of others I'm going to refer to as well. So my plan is to, um, to refer to predominantly uh, some things that have been written about reading in the last two years, and then I'm going to go backwards slightly and I'm going to do it very, very quickly um, because we, I don't obviously have a lot of time. So, I have to wander backwards. I do apologise because I don't have a clicker here today. So firstly, the most important thing I think we need to talk about is why. Why are we bothering to talk about the research? Some of us... Oh, am I going to make that go funny? Uh, some of us, um, I think, are probably really interested in reading research, but others of us maybe not. And I just wanted to highlight why we're bothering. I think it's very important if we uh, make sure we include research statements in our policy documentation, 
about what we're doing in our libraries and why. Now, that could be policies in relation to teaching. It might be policies in relation to the programming that we offer our school. It may be collection development. Very important in relation to collection development because the research should guide the decisions we make in relation to what we do for our students and our teachers. I think it's very important for submissions. If you are writing something and you're asking for extra staff, you're asking for different spaces, you're asking for increased programs, more money, all of these things, I think your administration will pay a lot more attention if you actually have the research evidence there to back you up. And a couple of the pieces that I'm going to share with you today, particularly the older pieces of research, um, are things that I've used myself in the various schools that I've worked in to argue the case um, for more. And I think um, it certainly has helped. Advocacy, if you are advocating um, on behalf of your library, if you're in threat of losing something, I think the research, it's very important to be able to drag that out and use it to back up the statements you're making about why we're important. It's all very well. We all know why we're important. And I know, I know how wonderful you all are, all are, but often we have to justify that, don't we? So if you are having to advocate and argue, very important to be able to have something that you can drag out at your fingertips. So I think important to keep these things, a file of them, and know where they are so that you can drag them out and use them. And I put school community and students there because I think it's also very important for us to tell our communities and our students why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, I think it's a, a very good thing to have a spot in the newsletter and have regular pieces of research. Um, even if it's only a couple of sentences and ask them to put it in a lovely box, you know, that this, this statement about research. You know, and today we're talking about reading, but it can be research in relation to anything, of course. And our students. I'm um, in a couple of schools where I have worked, I've shown the students the research evidence as to why they should be reading. When I'm doing my, when I was, not, not am, when I was doing wider reading programs, and I would be saying to them, okay, now we're here, we're all, I'm gonna ask you all to read, but why? And I'd show them the evidence. Um, and some of them, particularly, that are very keen on doing well, you know, when they see the evidence of the research, you know, they, they think, okay, there's a reason for me doing it this from beyond just the pleasure. And I think that's really important for them to know that. So those are all really good reasons, I think, for why we would bother, where have I gone? Why we would bother to, um, to be aware of, of the research. So the first slide I have is in relation to this particular website. Now, I'm not sure if all of you know this, uh, this website. This is basically a clearinghouse for, a a clearinghouse makes it, makes it sound more formal than it is, but a clearing place for uh, a, a collection of research in relation to reading. It's called Literacy Matters. It has been put together by the Western Australian School Library Association, uh, and they have the, the uh, overarching uh, um, approval of IFLA. Many of you will know IFLA, International Federation of Library Associations, uh, to create um, this website. It lists I can, you can only see a couple of them there. It lists reports, articles, uh, initiatives and infographics, all in relation to literacy. So it's one place where you can go and see a great long list of all of the articles um, and it's divided by country and it, has all, it's in, and it mainly uh, indicates uh, very new material. So a really great place to bookmark and use again and again. Um, and obviously it's hyperlinked so you can go straight from here um, to a whole lot of other research. So that's the first one I wanted to mention because it is that overarching collection of, uh, of documentation. 
Now the next couple of slides are about a person that we have speaking at the uh, November 23rd um, SLAB conference, an academic called Margaret Merger, who I'm sure many of you may have already read articles by her. And I'm just going to share with you a little bit of the two articles that she's written for us most recently. But a lot of her work, she's, uh, as ac academics do, is recycled a little bit, so we're seeing her articles in a few different places. But she's saying the same kinds of things. Um, and then the first one I was going to recommend to you was an article she wrote for Synergy. Uh, in the first edition this year, so you can go and find this, Myths About Children, Teenagers, Books and Reading, um, with, that she had published in Synergy. So that's online and all of you have access to that. I'm not going to read through all of this because I'm sure you can see it as we're going, but obviously she's trying to, um, in this case, bust some of these myths that a lot of people uh, think are true. For instance, that boys don't like reading fiction, etc., and don't like reading at all. So she's trying to bust some of these myths, and in her article she goes through and outlines the research that backs up uh, her idea that these statements are myths. So very important. And I think she's just a really interesting academic at the moment. She had a piece in The Conversation not long ago. She's had, you know, on radio as well. So I think she's one to watch, and it's fantastic that she's at November. She's not saying anything that we probably don't already know, but it's just important to have someone out there saying it loudly and proudly, which is great. Um, her other article that I was going to refer to was in the most recent, uh, one of the most recent editions of FYI, also in 2018, in winter. Obviously, because she's speaking for us in November, we're very keen to have her in our journals as well. Um, and this uh, article uh, was titled, Children Prefer to Read Books Rather Than Screens. And she was, it was a specific study, though, of quite young children, year four to year six. Um, and these are the a summary of the findings that, that she found. Um, so another very important one that you can go to. So uh, my first focus was to try and find things that were very new, uh, okay, that you can really be dragging out. But as I'm saying, this is not saying anything that we haven't really been reading for um, quite some time. And I will refer to a couple of large, much larger studies that also look at this issue as well. Um, so very important, uh, that I, and I think um, gives you really good, uh, really good pieces of. Uh, Margaret Merger is very good at writing quite short, sharp, and uh, quite incisive uh, articles. So they're really great for taking a sentence out of or a paragraph out of. Some people just go on and on, waffling all over the place until they get to the point. But her stuff is very concise and very straightforward. So if you're looking for something really quick and easy, she's fantastic, I think, and, and really good. And we're really looking forward to hearing her in November, on November 23rd as well. Um, I thought this was a nice connection, um, her work, to uh, a Sydney Morning Herald article that appeared in August. So I wanted to mention this. And I'm not going to read all this to you. I'm, I'm, I know you're adult enough to be able to have a quick look down that yourself. But I wanted to refer to the fact that this is a very large study. We're talking about a million teenagers and uh, 30 years. And I can see some of you nodding your heads. So you've probably already been reading this and it probably will be worth going back to the original. But this was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald discussing the findings of this. And I think it's most interesting too, it's important that we're aware of the terminology. So I had, when I first read this, I had not heard this term legacy media. So that's, they're talking about print there, as opposed to digital. So it's very important that we use the terminology that people are using and that we're aware of it. So when we hear it in our school, we know what people are talking about. Um, so very important. So, but again, this is not telling us anything that we don't know um, about how teenagers are consuming information and how they're responding to text. 
It does, um, I wanted to pick up on, it does go on to talk about... It looks at this idea of what this means in relation to the skill set and attention of our students. And I, I thought this was most interesting. Um, I myself have also done a little bit of research in this area and I think we at our peril ignore the difference between print and screen. And I think uh, this, this study actually does throw up some really interesting ideas. And they are suggesting that it, the difference between uh, print and in, in paper and in, on the screen can impact upon the way we understand complex ideas. And you'll see that up there in this. And this idea of how we develop critical thinking skills. So I think very, very good for when we're making arguments about the existence of our school libraries and about the way we interact with students that what we're trying to do is give them these much more complex skills and understandings and also give them this insight into how to critically analyse and read material. And this article argues that there is a very big difference between uh, the way our students interact with uh, screens and print and that they, this possibly can have impacts upon their levels of understanding and their levels of knowledge. Um, so I think that's really valuable and really important information for us. Okay, going to go a bit quicker. A couple of briefly we're going to mention. I wanted to mention this one. Some of you may know this Singaporean academic um, who we have had some contact with. I think this is interesting that we've got someone quite close to Australia doing a study looking at this idea of building a successful reading culture. She doesn't actually find anything that we, again, probably don't already know. Um, that it's all about the curation, uh, making books visible, etc., the programs we run, the spaces. Very nice statement, though, at the end there that I like about the ecology of reading. Uh, I'd love some time to unpack what that actually means. But very interesting, but I think she's really just talking about that culture again. But, um, but good to have someone um, close to Australia doing this, 2017. Someone you might like to go and have a look at. And then I thought, seeing we're still talking about the last two years, it's important to look at something like the, um, Australia, the American, beg your pardon, American um, Association of School Librarianship have recently put out um, new standards, uh, and this is uh, the, the front page of it, so the Standards Framework for Learners. Now, it's, it's overarching, of course, studying, looking, sorry, at all aspects of what we do in libraries, but it does have some lovely statements about, the, about reading, not specifically about narrative, but they're looking at reading in a much more holistic way. But I still think it has some, it has some great things that we can take away if we were writing particularly policy documentation. Very important to be able to say your policies are underpinned by something like the American Association's standards that have only just come out this year, I think. Very powerful. And I liked a lot of the terminology, even though it's not really about narrative, it still talks about engaging and encouraging, uh, etc. Um, but it, it does, it's branching a little bit more widely because it's about all kinds of reading. But still important. Now I'm going to go backwards. Um, so the first really old one that I wanted to mention to you was PISA. I still don't think you can go past that. It's a very, very important study. Um, and it's been reiterated in a number of, uh, number of ways. The uh, piece I have on the screen is a small PISA in focus which came out, which actually looks at do students today read for pleasure. Um, so I think there's, there's that, but then there's the much larger study which was called Reading for Change. Very, very valuable. And I don't know whether any of you have used it um, to argue anything yet, but if you haven't, it is very, very important. 
it, it analyzes uh, all the different countries and compares across countries. Australia sits somewhere in the middle in relation to our engagement of students in pleasure reading. And it makes a really strong argument for the importance of pleasure reading, which I think is in, um, uh, very valuable for us being an international study and everyone knows uh, PISA and the OECD. Um, this is the statement that I've used again and again and again. I've used it so many times. This idea of how we engage students um, is crucial in relation to their reading proficiency. Um, so it's a great argument for why we exist because no one engages them in the way we do um, with reading for pleasure. You know, their English teachers aren't going to do it. Sometimes they destroy it, unfortunately. Um, and so it really is all about this idea of engagement and the degree to which we create motivated readers. It's making a very strong argument for if we're going to pr create proficient students, they really need to be engaged. So even though it's old, um, I did want to go back past a couple of these um, really old ones anyway. I'm probably going way over time. I'm going to go quick, quick. Um, this is another article that I absolutely adore. It was in Scientific American in 2003, um, The Reading Brain in the Digital Age. It's actually a summary of everything to that point, every research paper that this gentleman could find, and he did a very good job. Uh, so he summarises all the research that he can find in relation to how the brain relates to either the screen or paper. It's excellent. Um, also an excellent jumping off place because he's summarised all of these other research papers. You can then go and read those papers if you, if you really want to get um, in, into something in a lot more depth. But um, very readable um, and just very insightful. Says some fantastic things and pulls together research from all over the world. Um, so very, very important. Also in 2013 um, was this article which I also like very, very much. Uh, because I think it's a really interesting discussion that we don't talk about enough. It makes that link between reading and our, and our, our ability to be empathetic. Um, and it actually makes an argument for uh, narrative fiction increasing our empathy, uh, sh showing, helping us to understand others. Because reading is all about reading others' experiences, isn't it? And understanding someone that's different to us. And so this article makes a very strong argument for how important that is in our students' development. I think you could make, and I have made, some really great links with this in relation to the general capabilities in the Australian curriculum, um, which has a lot in there about, um, about ethical understanding and about empathy, etc. So very, very useful article. Um, and the last two things I'm going to finish on, which are all even older still, I think, um, is Michelle Lonsdale in 2003 uh, wrote that Impact of School Libraries on Student Achievement, which was a review of research. This particular statement that's in that review, I don't know how many things I've used this in. <laughs> if I had to pay royalties, it would have cost me an awful lot of money. But it's just perfect. A print-rich environment leads to more reading and free voluntary reading is the best predictor of comprehension, vocabulary growth, spelling, grammar, etc. It's just perfect. You know, that's what that's what a library is, and what it's basically saying is that you know we contribute to that amazing growth amongst our students. So very very useful statement. Um, and the last one I can't talk about reading without mentioning Mr. Krashen. Um and I mean you know this is the kind of statement you need to put in your school newsletter. There is a great deal of evidence showing that children with more access to books read more. Well, you know. Da, da, or whatever. Um, absolutely, but it, but it's coming from a research perspective. I mean, this is a professor or a retired professor now, 
um, from America, from Berkeley, and I'm a very, very important man. And so, you know, this it's a very simple statement, but it's just really, really powerful. And obviously, you can go back and um, read his full book, which unpacks that in a much more complicated way. But what he's doing there for us is saying it for it so very simply. And so, again, it's something that you can use um, very, very easily, I think. So the Deacon research, and then we'll and then we'll have our first lovely author, because I'm sure this is all just a little bit. And I'm sure I'm probably telling you about papers and articles you already know about. I find sometimes, though, it's actually really good to be reminded. You know, you think, oh, I forgot about Mr. Crashen, you know. I mean, you haven't heard about him for a while, so it's just good to be reminded. And I know there are lots of others. I've only made a very quick selection because I knew I only had 20 minutes, but, well, you know. So this is the teen reading in the digital era. This is the first project that the Deacon were involved with, and this is, this is their web presence. So it actually has... They have a very good website. It has a list of all their research. It has a list of all their publications. So you can go there and download all of that. Um, I've printed off a couple of copies here of the Snapshot Report, if anyone would like to take one. Um, so this is what the Snapshot Report looks like. And it came out in 2017. Okay? And it found a couple of... I'm just going to give you a couple of brief reviews of it. This idea of a clear link between reading for pleasure and school. The important thing about this, sorry, I should have said, is that it's Australian um, and the work is being done here by academics that we know, so very important. Teenagers are reading, but their reading choices are diverse. Again, we know all of this, but it's just good to have it in, um, in some kind of format that we might be able to use. So another couple of statements. Again, we know this already, um, but important to have, I think, um, it said increased dependence on digital platforms, uh, increased narrative competition, so more competition in the marketplace of what our children are engaged with. Very important. Um, in relation to the future of research in this space, uh, they found this, um, and it goes on a little bit, a bit wordy, but they, they, I've highlighted in there and read a couple of it, uh, what, what they're, the uh, synthesis of it, I suppose is what they're talking about and they really are writing this um, and I'll explain the next step there. So this is where they feel they need to go. Their first pieces of research showed them that there was a lack in some areas and that there needs to be more research done. Importantly from our perspective, um, we have recently signed um, an in-kind agreement with Deakin. When I say we, it's SLAV, so that's us. Um, and we are going to be, if they get their next round of funding, um, involved in their next uh, level of research following on from what they've identified. So basically they're now seeking a, a lot more money to be able to do extra research. The first round showed them that, and something that they actually didn't realise, that teacher librarians and school libraries are a very important part of the puzzle in relation to students and their reading. And they therefore became more interested in SLAV and have asked us to be an in-kind partner in the next stage. Now they might not get their money, and if they don't get their money, nothing will happen. If they do get their money, we will actually be um, consulting with them and uh, assisting them in, in finding their way through how school libraries actually work with students. And there will be a chance for many of our members to actually be involved in that research. So it's actually very exciting for us. Their research could have taken an entirely different direction and they might have just talked to public libraries or they might have just talked uh, to, they're actually talking about talking to publishers. So they're, they're looking at a whole lot of different things. But they've identified us as a key partner 
and are keen to work with us. Um, and it's one of the reasons why Katya and Leone have spoken at our conferences and Katya was going to come again today, etc. Because they want to partner and work with us because they see us as very important in this process. And that's really good for us. Um, if they get the money though, we're talking a few years away. So, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But fingers crossed, and you'll certainly hear about it if it does happen. And, uh, and we'll be looking for schools where they can actually do some uh, on-the-ground research. So do keep that in mind. Um, and very exciting, I think. Um, so that's all of that. I'll change that screen. Um, as I said, there are come, some printouts down here. I only printed those for you, so if you'd like one of them, take them away. And then I did want to remind you, that's where the Margaret Merger article is in the winter of 2018. So if you didn't get that, I will have copies downstairs if any of you want one and, and don't have it, or you can always email me and I'll send it out. Um, so that's there as well. So that was the whirlwind tour from me. Did anyone come along with something that they would love to share? I don't know whether you read that part of the email. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Would you like to use this? Because it is very loud, that air conditioner. It is. Okay. In, the, in the garden, Guardian, newspaper was a um, reference to a recent, which, and it's 2018, um, article published about the correlation between books in the home and the impact on reading. And um, it found that there is a direct correlation between the number of books that teenagers growing up have in their home and their educational outcomes. So I thought that that was an interesting one to share. Would you mind sending that no, no, by the way. Thank you very much. That's really good. Um, so that was in the Guardian? And this oh, year? Well, the, Guardian, the Guardian referred to it. And, and you went back to the longer one. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Um, so that's one. Anybody else? Just oh, Karen? Just to say that Jaber article. Yes, the Scientific American one. It is really worth, worth reading. It's one of my favourites. Yes, Karen. yes. Because um, I, I did a subject on um, digital literature and that really explains the whole landscape of the page, which I think was excellent. It's really interesting, mm. isn't it? I actually learnt a whole lot I didn't know about the way our brain works and how it works with the screen. Very, very interesting. So Karen's talking about this article, the Reading, reading, the, reading Brain in the Digital Age. But they're all available online. You'll have no trouble finding them online, and I will send you the URLs. Anybody else? Um, I always use, because I've been in uh, schools overseas, I use the ALA, I mean I use the School Library Association, but the actual ALA website, ALA.org, the American Library Association, has fantastic material, I think, um, and it's great just to do a control find and search by, you know, keywords and stuff. Um, on pretty well anything, if you come, come up against an argument from an administrator who's saying, you know, why are you doing this or why are you doing that? and I think often we organically do the things we know best, but sometimes we don't have an argument. And I often go in there, and I've had, especially um, being overseas, I've had a lot of um, uh, administrators always ask about um, selected materials and um, developing my uh, collections and having materials taken or you know materials put aside and banned book weeks and all that sort of stuff. Um, and ALA has some fantastic materials to back up why you're choosing the stuff you're choosing. So if you're deciding to put in some interesting or controversial or more graphic format into your collections, it's great to have some backup there. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, Fiona. You're right. It's an excellent source. And our hope for the new Slav website is to slowly build up a repository of 
all of these on the SLAB website too. So we'll be making a bit of a call for recommendations at some point in the newsletter and hopefully you can help us bring together all of these resources in one place on the SLAB website to help people. So that's another task on the list of things. Okay, so thank you for that. I'm sorry Katya wasn't here, but as you can hear from what I've said about that project, there will be lots of opportunities to hear her in the future, I hope. I hope she's enjoying China. So, we are up to the next part of our program. We have two wonderful authors, and I think we're starting with Siobhan. Where is Siobhan hiding? He's right in front of me, and I'm looking straight at you. Sorry, Siobhan. So, Siobhan is here to talk to us about her wonderful novel, The Tin Heart. Yes? And would you like to come up front? Yes. And would you like to have this? Yes. I'll just have this one. Yeah, I know. So I was going to keep an eye on the time there in front of me. So I'm not just checking my text messages. I am actually just paying attention to the time. Um, so yeah, so my name is Siobhan Plozer. I have met some of you have familiar faces. Some of you I've met at your schools or at various events like this. Um, and I'm going to be talking today specifically about my re most recent book, which is Tin Heart, which might be waved. It's, oh, there we go. I figured it'd be here. I wouldn't have to bring my own copy. This book here. Um, it came out in March earlier this year. Um, and I just... Forewarning, um, I haven't been able to talk specifically about this book without embarrassing myself and crying yet. So I'm going to do my best not to continue to embarrass myself, um, but we'll see how we go. So just fair warning. Um, where it starts though, was in 2013, and it's not a sad beginning. Um, I was doing a course um, at university, I was doing my master's in publishing and communications, and I needed a bit of a break from that. And so I did a, a, a writing course, hadn't been doing any sort of writing courses for a while, I thought I just want to focus on my writing on the side for a little bit. And I did a writing course with Penny Russell, who if you've um, had her to your school, she is incredible. She's probably the best creative writing teacher I've ever come across um, to get her into your schools. Um, and uh, she made us do this most horrific exercise though. Lovely human made us do this horrible exercise, which was we had to come up with 100 book ideas in an hour. So that's, you don't even have a whole minute per book idea. You just have to get as much down on the page as possible. Um, and I've still got this most amazing resource. I still can mine back into that amazing resource. I actually do this activity with, when I go into schools, in a much smaller, more achievable way. Um, but it's great because you're rushing to get ideas down. Your, brain, your critical brain switches off and the creativity takes over. And one of the ideas that I came up with in that exercise was Romeo and Juliet but with a vegan and a butcher. And that resonated in particular with me because I've been vegetarian since I was 15 and I've been vegan off and on. I thought, this is something I can really have a lot of fun with. But there was something still missing from that idea. The, the characters came relatively fully formed, but there was this big sort of black hole of something that was missing in the narrative. I knew there was a reason that, that sort of my main character, Marlo, I knew that she, there was some pain that she was masking. And I knew that her mother was overbearing for a particular reason. I knew that her little brother Pip was, he just kept turning up in every scene in these most outrageous over the top Halloween style costumes. I knew there was a reason why and I knew that those three things were somehow connected but I didn't know what that was. So I had to leave it aside for a while. I finished working on my first book, Frankie. Um, but when it was, when I'd done everything I could, when it was a fully formed book and I had to start on the next book, um, something else was going on in my life at the time. So my older brother, um, who'd been chronically ill with numerous things since, for all of his adult life, basically, 
Um, one of his illnesses has gotten so bad that he was in need of a, a transplant. He was, he was going to die unless he had a transplant. And have, having you know, grown up with him and he's had these illnesses all his life, that was sort of part of that experience. This is the first time that, that the word dying was attached to anything. Terrible quality of life, sure, but, but not dying. And that really hit home quite hard. And I thought, you know, the, the worst part of this would be waiting while he's on that transplant list for the organ and slowly he's dying. And there's nothing we can do about that. But then we get the phone call in the middle of the night from his partner saying, I'm, I'm, I'm shoving you into the car now, we're going to the hospital. There's an organ. I thought, well, this is the worst part now, actually, because now I'm just going to sit here and we can't do anything for the hours and hours it takes for him while he's in the operation and we don't know whether it's going to be successful and this is, this is far worse than waiting while he was on the transplant list. But then we get into the ICU after the, after the, um, after the operation and it was great, he was fine. He was totally off his face on pain medication and complete personality transplant. He's normally a very grumpy person but he was everybody's best friend and it was actually quite comical. But I thought this is actually the worst part because we're sitting here and we are completely overwhelmed with the joy that this has been successful and he has survived. But right next to us was a family and it wasn't going so great for them, sorry. <laughs> and they were saying goodbye. And that just brought home that there was a family that we would never know that was saying goodbye to their loved one, that had said goodbye to their loved one. And we would never know who that person was that had given my brother life. We would never know them. We would never know anything. We wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't even know a name. Because that was one of the things I didn't know about before this sort of vague idea of organ transplant happened to my family. I'd sort of got the whole idea of the sort of the, you know, the American positive stories we see on the, 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 the father of someone gets to walk down the, the recipient down the aisle and that sort of thing. But you never actually get to know. We have privacy laws in Australia. You never get to know the name of your donor. You, you can't communicate with the family directly. And that was the worst part because I thought, you don't know about all this stuff, this way and stuff, this has got nothing to do with it. Now, you've got all this happily ever after, but it's not knowing who this family was, never being able to say thank you. We didn't know that there was ongoing um, appointments, to, there, was, there was a rejection, there were various diseases that you were more prone to. He's just been diagnosed with skin cancer now because the, the drugs that you take to make sure that the organ doesn't reject leaves you susceptible to all these other horrible conditions. And this whole happily ever after, I thought, no, this is the bit that's worse because there's a shelf life on this organ. We're going to have to go over this again in any way in 10, 15 years' time. And it's just this constant not knowing underpinned the whole time by this sort of sense of guilt that you, someone had to die for you to live. And I thought, I don't know how you move on forward from that, knowing constantly, that constant battle in yourself of that, yes, I'm incredibly thankful, but how do I move on from that when I've got that guilt constantly pressing in on me? And I thought, that's the story that I need to tell so that I can understand what's going on. I can understand the position that my brother's in so I can deal with the stuff that I'm, that's going around in my head so, then, so my family can sort of dissect what's going on. I thought, that's the thing I want to write about, the after. What happens after everything's supposed to be fantastic, after the last life-saving life operation. Um, so that's what the story's about. It takes place actually a year after the operation where 
everything's basically okay for her, except it's not, because she doesn't know who she is anymore. And worse than that, she just feels like this idea that if I knew who my donor was, then I might know who I am, and she can't escape from that. So she makes some terrible decisions based on that need, that drive. She desperately wants to know who the family was and who her donor was so she can say thank you. Um, so that's my story. I didn't cry too badly. Uh, I'm getting better each time I tell it. Um, so thank you so much for listening to me and I'll pass back to Susan or onto... that. So now we are joined by the lovely Katrina, Katrina Lehman, who's going to talk. Now, what would you like? Would you like a table or something? Or a, what would you like to do? You want to walk? Um, okay, I don't know how we can do that. You happy? Sorry, I should have printed this out. <laughs> yes, underneath. Yeah. Firstly, thank you, Susan, for having me here. And, um, and thank you, everyone, for having me here. So my name's Katrina, and I published... This picture book came out with Scribble, um, which is the kids' imprint of Scribe, uh, publishing in July. It's my first picture book. But I'm here not just to talk about this, but also to talk about... I, I wear two hats. I'm also a senior editor for um, Penguin Kids. So um, one of my colleagues actually works with Siobhan. Uh, so, um, Penguin Random House, as we know, uh, young readers, but kids books, basically. Uh, so, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background to where the story came from, but also um, what it was like wearing two hats, editing and, and, and writing this book. And, and please ask any questions as I go. Um, so, as long as I can remember, I've written um, partly out of escapism, partly as a way of sort of reclaiming, uh, claiming my own space, really. I grew up in, um, I had a childhood growing up in country New South Wales. So when I wasn't sort of yabbing, leeching, box sliding down hills, etc., I was, you know, in Narnia or fleeing Nazis with my dog companion, writing my dinky diary. I'm sure there's quite a few people here know what a dinky diary is. Um, in grade six, Colin Teeley visited me. And, and also, you know, I want to say that um, the thing about this whole world was it was about creativity, adventure, and it was a world without adults which to me is really what picture books are about, sort of really, um, and many books really. There are, the, the adults in most cases are sort of off stage. Um, that's where you sort of get your best, um, your best stories. So in grade six, Colin Teeley visited, and that wasn't a very common experience in those days, authors visiting schools, whereas now um, I have found recently visiting schools I, it sort of varies between the oh famous author, which is really, which is really lovely. Can I carry books for you? And oh here, here comes another one. And haven't even read the book. I'm just like seriously. And I accompany my authors to some sessions. I'm like they they sometimes they're getting an author a week, and um, it's I mean it's it's great for them to have that opportunity, but at the same time, it's it's sad to see that it's it's become such a commonplace thing. Um, so anyway, Colin Tilly visited us to talk about Storm Boy and writing, and I was I was hooked. That was it. And then I discovered at RMIT when I went to do professional writing and editing course um, with Sophie Laguna, who went on to great things. 
Um, and I discovered that editing was actually a career. Uh, and um, it just seemed to be that my two, the two worlds had collided perfectly. I mean, what better thing to do than try to create your own magic and work with people who created magic. Um, and I also assumed wrongly, as it turned out, that I could probably make some money out of editing, whereas people had warned me you couldn't make money out of writing. <laughs> Neither of them turned out to be true. Um, I do joke to people, um, my banking friends, who say, oh, you know, they ask, so how many books have you sold? So that, that's what it's all about. And I might put it this way, I won't be putting a pool in. <laughs> I was particularly interested in writing for kids. It's silly, I know, but I've always felt that what you read as a child forms a part of your DNA. When people tell me they've never read John Marsden's Tomorrow series, Judy Bloom, Hardy Boys, The Lake at the End of the World, David Armand, I sort of can't help feeling a bit sad for them, like they've sort of lost a slice of their childhood or a crucial part of their development. Um, and they, those books were what made me who I am. And it's like that person just missed out on that. And I, I do admit to sort of forcing it upon them as an adult, which is probably not a good idea if any of you have read Ina Blyton now. It just doesn't work. Um, so I think part of the reason I wanted to write books for kids was because I wanted to recapture my childhood, but I also wanted to transport a child into another life and give them an experience or a chance to be someone they'll perhaps never be in real life, or whether it be fantasy, realism, dystopian, love dystopian, historical. So to know that I wrote something that was so completely enthralling that someone became the main character in the book and lived their story was, was my ultimate Aim, and I'm sure the aim of every author, really. In particular, I've always been fascinated by picture books and how such a powerful message can be conveyed in so few words and so few pages. People just don't recognise the amount of time and effort that's gone into distilling an entire experience, a whole story with its complex structure and themes into just 32 pages. I mean, it's, it's basically a novel in 32 pages. And, and you know, I'm sure... As librarians and teachers, you, you come across that um, where I, I find when I'm going into classes now and I'm teaching writing, creative writing. So I've been into grade three classes and we talk about, they're talking about persuasive writing and story structure. So we talk about, you know, beginning, middle and end. And I've got a grade three girl, so she's actually been going through my speech. It's quite funny and giving me um, tips on what works and what doesn't work. That's a bit boring, Mum. And when you're talking about stereotypes, maybe just give one example. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, you know, for the really younger, just talking about taking a character and how you can make a story about that, and also talking about realism versus fantasy and getting them to write a blurb or a story outline has been a really good experience for them. So I get the grade threes to do book reviews because for them, trying to tell, I don't know if you've ever asked an eight-year-old to tell you what a movie was about or what a book was about, and they pretty much retell the whole thing in 45 minutes. Okay, okay, okay. So for them, it's a really good way of distilling a story into five lines and also being able to see that that's what they could do is write a story in five lines and then expand it. So I've been at Penguin Books for nearly 15 years as a kids' book editor. I work on picture books through to middle readers and young adult, um, doing everything, structural, copy editing, reading unsolicited, etc. I work with Gus Gordon and Isabel Carmody and Mark Martin, Andy Joyner, all these amazing authors and guiding them with their structure and story, pairing back and polishing their writing, helping them achieve that authentic setting and character has been really good for my own writing. As you can imagine, seeing my own flaws and weaknesses in my story. Um, 
authors often ask me what's the trend for picture books and just in keeping with this whole research idea as well, chapter books, YA at the moment, they even ask me, some authors, what should I write? And I'm like, you can research what's in the bookstores, what's hot, what's not. You can tick all the boxes, unicorns, fairies, zombies. But really what it comes down to is authenticity. And by authenticity, I mean a character and a setting that rings true. It means researching your target audience and writing for that audience, the dialogue, the vernacular, the setting, the themes that are relevant to that age group. And I can see straight away when, when they're not comfortable writing for that age group. And I do get authors who try and write across different, but I can see what authors, what they're comfortable with. I can see it in their writing when we have to work a lot harder at that. I can see it in the dialogue. Um, I can see it in, in, in what they're trying to get across. And it really does take a lot of research, a lot of study and a lot of practice to hit that target audience. It's a really good practice, I think, to write a picture book, then write a chapter book, then write a novel. Wren came about because of a combination of a couple of things. One, wondering how our two very different girls, I've got three children under eight, were going to react to the new baby in the family. Two, my fascination with family dynamics and how different siblings can be growing up with four on a farm. And three, wondering what it was like for my brother, littlest brother, growing up as the youngest of four and the only boy. So I started writing about this little boy who just wanted to find his own place in a big family. And it all flowed really quickly from there. I actually did it after teaching creative writing classes and then I would go to a little cafe and sit and write. And I found after doing stream of consciousness with my classes that I was really inspired. Wren was really about my childhood and for me it was about the importance of giving each other space and embracing chaos and creativity. So it's, it's about a little boy who just wants a little bit of peace and quiet and he's one of five. He's just trying to find his space in his family and he gets a baby, a new baby sister. And so he decamps to his grandparents on the farm. It's his only way that he can see of sort of dealing with this. Um, his love of peace and quiet is extremely relatable and I can't tell you how many parents come up to me, especially, you know, in this suburban setting uh, nowadays. Um, and for me, I, it was one of the ideas I wanted children to explore in reading this book, was the importance of giving each other space. Having three children is definitely challenging, and particularly, as I said, in this suburban setting, where there is so much social activity. Everyone's running from structured play to structured play to structured play. And, um, and you forget how quiet time, how important it is. I wanted to depict a loving and vibrant depiction of family chaos. And funnily enough, the author, Sophie, um, is one of five. Um, and she'd never illustrated a kid's book before. Um, and she just totally got it. Um, the, so I wanted to depict this joyful, chaotic environment. Pirates swinging out the windows, baby sister, and the complete freedom and resilience of an outdoors childhood, which is, which is something I can't give my kids. Um, that farm upbringing, but I just wanted to encourage as much free-range play and independence and chaos as possible and, and let them know it is a good thing and, and how to find your space. It has been quite a surreal experience, the whole book process as an author. Um, we took six months finding Mary, uh, sorry, finding Sophie, the illustrator, with Mary, the publisher, because we wanted first a debut illustrator. It's, you know, it's really hard in the pitch book market at the moment. Um, not just pitch book, why it's really difficult. So you need a point of difference. We needed something bright, something vibrant, maybe a little abstract. I had envisaged this romantic, you know, um, Stephen Michael King pen and inks with watercolour, that's what I'd grown up with. And Mary was like, no, and I, when I first saw it, I was like, she's really ugly, he's really ugly. 
And she said, no, but, and it's amazing how many kids actually, and how many parents have picked this up. Could be that it's yellow in winter, it might have helped. Um, and we went back and forth a lot. And as an editor, you know, I wore my editor's hat. There was a lot of collaboration. And she, I'd say, you know, how about vignettes rather than full bleeds? Maybe we could put the, I had to be very careful, maybe we could put the text down here. And what about moving this around there? And so, so they were, I, I was very careful not to tread on toes, but it was really, it was really lovely having that relationship with an author. And it's something I always encourage as an editor with an author, illustrator, sorry, with author illustrators character consistency, um, composition, um, and Sophie's intuitive, you know, feel for composition anyway was amazing and colour. So now I'm having to be the social export expert, which I'm sure you've found, which has just taken it to a whole other, you know, Insta. Kristen's been trying to, trying to <laughs> help me on my Instagram, my website, my, it's, and you know, I take my hat off to authors now that I've realised what it is like to be on the other side. But the really lovely, unexpected part of being an author for me was what I didn't expect was the school visits. Because I was actually, you know, the book's done and dusted, it's out there. But actually getting to talk to kids about writing and about the book and about character, just picking one thing out about it, has been so joyful. And also, it's been really interesting seeing, I feel like there's been a bit of resurgence. I did worry about it being lost, but there's been a bit of resurgence in creative writing at the moment. It's become an after-school activity at our school, Melbourne Primary School, and at a few other schools now. There's, um, there's a, in Fitzroy, there's a writing workshop where schools can go and take kids and do, and a lot of parents have been coming to me saying, do you do writing tutorials for my eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old? So I think it's really lovely that there was such an emphasis on persuasive writing, and I think it's great that perhaps people are recognising that creative writing's just as important for structure and for so um, hopefully you enjoy it and um, yeah, it's been, um, I also lecture and teach creative writing and editing at RMIT and Melbourne Uni, so it's, um, it's been really interesting talking to kids and adapting my talks to kids. Any questions? Sorry, I've gone over a bit. No? Yeah, yeah, come and ask me any questions, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Katrina. Kristen's going to do, Kristen from the Kids Bookshop, is going to do 10 books in what? 10, 10 seconds? No? 10 minutes? <laughs> Sorry about my shoes. I stupidly put high heels on today after, you know, not wearing open toe shoes for however many months. Bad, bad decision. Put my thongs in so that I could just wear them if I needed to walk a bit of a distance. It's too late. I'm covered in blisters, so I can't take them off now. Sorry. Okay, I've used up one minute already. Okay. Um, I just, yeah, I'm going to do this really quickly. Got lots of lovely picture books today. And this one by Shelley Unwin and Vivian Toe is about the baddie running through this book. It's a really vibrant... Look, the end papers. I'm going to talk about end papers a little bit today because we shouldn't forget how we start off when we open up a picture book. Just fantastic. And a really great springboard, really, to get into the rest of the book. So just a sample of what these illustrations are like. Great for reading aloud, great for sharing. It really is about um, good, evil. What else have I got on my notes? Um, baddies, goodies, 
um, interesting in terms of um, early concepts too. Talks about up and down, talks about above and below, fast or slow, left or right, behind or ahead, hiding um, or fled. So lots of great read aloud concepts, opportunities to stop and have a little explore of the language. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. And my glasses. Um, what does an anteater eat? Um, look, this is a fairly straightforward story, but again, I loved um, the idea of it. It's great for reading aloud. There's a fantastic twist in the tale at the end. It's a story for young readers, um, but I do like the way it does extend young readers' vocabulary a little bit using books like uh, words like convinced and recommend and, um, and has a really, really great outcome. So another terrific read aloud. This one, I'm the seed that grew the tree, a nature poem for every day of the year. I'm absolutely in love with this book. It, I mean, it's really hard to get lovely um, poetry books. Again, end papers, beautiful. Set in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a Northern Hemisphere book. But I think that's fine. We can just talk about the fact that we're in the Southern Hemisphere, other people are in the Northern Hemisphere and, and, and seasons are different, etc. Um, poems of all shapes and sizes um, and presentations, the way they're presented is really interesting. On page 91, Susan, for example. <laughs> oh my God, I've wasted 30 seconds. Um, I forget which one. Oh, I just love this little poem. Sixth, blow breezes blow, flow rivers flow, shine sunshine and grow flowers grow. I just love the idea that kids can accept the fact that a poem doesn't want it, I mean that rhymes, but it doesn't have to rhyme, it doesn't have to be X number of stanzas, it can be all sorts of shapes and all sorts of sizes and it's fine. Um, there's a poem by Dutch Lawrence, there's the traditional poems like Lavender's Blue, Dilly Dilly, which I grew up with, and lots of cross-curriculum opportunities with um, literacy, outdoor learning, sustainability and the environment. So that's a beautiful book. The Short and Curly Guide to Life. Sadly, we, we didn't go ahead with our non-fiction event last week um, because we didn't get the numbers, but these guys were coming to talk and they are fantastic. This book is jam-packed. Who's heard of the Short and Curlies? Yeah, so, okay, so to explain, they, they have a podcast on ABC, on the ABC, they talk about all things ethics and philosophy and um, higher level thinking. And they do this in a very humorous, light-hearted kind of way, but it does, um, it, it does draw children in. In fact, one of our customers said to us, oh, my children just love it. We have the podcast on in the car all the time. I love the idea that we are asking our children to think at a higher level, to, it, to broaden their, their, the way they think and how they think. Um, and that's what this, these guys do. Um, so there's lots of opportunities, obviously, for working with this book in terms of using the podcast, uh, YouTube, and, and the book itself. It's very humorous. And zombie survival. Yeah, I, I just think that should be in every classroom, to be honest. It certainly should be in every library. A Thousand Useful Words. This is a, for very young, again, early years. Um, hang on, I've got my glasses back on. Um, it's great for building vocabulary and literacy skills, interesting format, taking everyday examples of place, events, uh, activities to generate examples of using new words for the very young and great, again, to have in the early years classroom. So it's kind of play on those dictionaries of common, commonly used words that we 
we saw on um, guided reading tables, etc. back in the day. Um, DK do this stuff so beautifully. It's lovely. The Marvel Studios Visual Dictionary, one for older readers. Um, again, it's the sort of stuff that DK does so very well. A fantastic visual collection of Marvel heroes and characters presented as DK have been doing for years. Kids love dipping in and out of these books, sharing information and reliving film experiences. And I always think it's great to have these books on hand. When the kids come back from school holidays, they've seen the latest Marvel film, whatever it is that they've done during the holidays, everyone's talking about the films and there's the book that they can actually dip into. They don't have to read it from go to woe, they can just actually dip in and out according to who their Marvel hero is. Um, a stage full of Shakespeare stories. A really lovely presentation of, um, of Shakespeare's classics. Um, Susan, could you display the end papers, please? Thank you. Just really lovely. Um, classic quote at the beginning of every chapter, cast of characters, and a very abridged version of the story. It makes this, again, a very um, easy, accessible way to... Um, introduce Shakespeare to young readers. I, I would pitch this for middle to upper primary, but some readers in lower secondary would also enjoy that. Here's the bargain of the Christmas period. This is three stories from Morris Gleitzman for $24.99. So pizza cake, it's not chocolate, and give peas a chance in one bound um, edition. Um, he is our children's laureate, of course, for this year and next year, and, and a master storyteller, whether it be his um, more serious novels or his very funny novels, he is a very funny man. And I love the idea that kids will think they're reading a very, very long book, but actually they're reading three different books, yeah. Um, an anthology of intriguing animals, a beautiful hardback illustrated book, that includes information on animals from around the world, including kangaroos, um, koalas, crocodiles, etc. So again, very easily set out and accessed for young readers, and beautiful to look at. Look at. It also has a visual guide and a glossary, and I love that it has both. Tick tick. Last one. I think I did all right. That is a beautiful gift and a beautiful book for the library. I feel like I'm doing a Tupperware party now. Yeah. Well, you're doing a great job. Timelines of everything from woolly mammoths to world wars, beautifully presented. It covers everything from 3000 BC to post-1914 and beyond. It's visual, it's colourful, it's factual. Um, it's a wonderful resource, again, for students in middle to upper primary and, again, right through to lower secondary. So lots of dipping in and out. Great for um, reluctant readers as well as very enthusiastic readers. So I've concentrated a fair bit on um, non-fiction there, but I feel like there's probably something for all readers amongst that lot. And I, it, there's lots over there I would really like to talk about too, but um, because I only am allowed to have 10 books in 10 minutes, that's it. Um, I can I just quickly say if you wanted to book a, a Christmas pop-up shop for you and your staff, you just need to tell Graham that that's a nice idea. It, every, he'll just bring lots of beautiful books for both kids and adults for the adults for the staff to buy for Christmas. Ten percent off plus five percent of all sales would go to the ILF. So if that sounds like something you'd like to do, schools have done it in the past, and we think it's a nice idea. There's usually a morning tea in the library and staff come in and. 
Um, and there's lots of beautiful books. Um, I wanted to mention that if you wanted a book fair in 2019, you can also book that. We're starting to get bookings for those now. So if you want to have it when you want to have it, it's best to um, get in early. And also literature circle suggestions. We've had a lot of fun, mostly at the end of last term, but if you're still looking for literature circle suggestions, hop onto the website. There is a category now that is um, classroom, I think it's called Lit Circles for years three to six and have a look at those um, suggestions. But if you want any help, please do contact Tegan or Graham um, and they will be able to help you do that. Um, and that's it from me. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. We love the footwear. Um, if I could just finish by saying thank you. Uh, we've really enjoyed putting on the Reading Forum this year and it will re return again next year. Um, if you have any thoughts at all about anything to do with the forum that might help us plan it, please do let me know. And um, we really appreciate the partnership with the bookshop and the chance to be able to have these fairly informal discussions. So we think it's valuable that Slav continue it. So we'd love your feedback. Before you go, please do have a browse of the books. Um, and there's lots more food up the back there. So have another drink and um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.